afternoon. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Groda, your host, with uh, joined as usual with Dr. Kenneth Howell. Uh, he's joining us from Illinois, and I'm here in Ohio. So I, I, I thank those of you who've sent us emails of confirmation to the program. We thank you for that. Um, if you'd like to find out more about the program, you can go to deepinscripture.com, and we'd love to hear from you. We're working through the Book of Romans. We've taken a bit of a break through the Christmas season, um, and now that Epiphany is behind us, we're back looking at Romans. And it is interesting, Ken, you know, if you think about Epiphany um, as the, in many ways, the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament to proclaim the Messiah to the world, which is what Epiphany is about, you know, that the, the wise men came. Mm. It's interesting to think of that in relationship to the passage we're looking at today, because Romans 9, 1 through 13, right in the middle, there's uh, an enumeration of salvation history. And the middle of that is, is the promises, uh, the patriarchs and the Christ, all of which were fulfilled in the, the incarnation of our Lord at Christmas and then the, the visit of the Magi's uh, at Epiphany in this proclamation. And we can talk about that in a moment, Ken. Uh, but the audience, we're going to look at Romans 9, 1 through 13. And Ken, what I'd love to do is, is uh, put on your plate right now for our audience uh, to put this section of Romans in the wider context of the book of Romans, especially for maybe those who haven't, or maybe joining us for the first time today. Well, I'm so glad, Marcus, that you uh, made reference here to Christmas. It's such a wonderful connection because, in in fact, um, of course, Christmas or the, the incarnation and the birth and the proclamation of our Savior to the world of the wise men in Epiphany and then coming up this coming Sunday in baptism of our Lord, all of this is the unveiling of God's wonderful plan of salvation. You know, Paul in Galatians says that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was a paedagogos. He uses a Greek word. It means a, a tutor leading us to, to the fulfillment in Christ. And that's what Paul's been proclaiming in the book of Romans, is that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law and give us the sonship, the, the, the being sons and daughters of God. The, the letter to the Romans is this proclamation of that gospel to people in the capital of the Roman Empire of the first century who had never, which he had never visited, but he was planning to visit as he was on his way to Rome. What we've seen in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans is this wonderful proclamation that this Messiah, this Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was not simply for the Jews, but for all of the peoples of the earth. And Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, leads us through eight chapters of proclaiming that wonderful gospel uh, to climax in this wonderful statement, that all of this coming of Christ into the world, his 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 life, his death, his resurrection, uh, and preceded by his his uh, birth and the glorious uh, proclamation of the angels, all of that means, in effect, as he says in chapter eight, verse thirty-seven, 
that we are more than conquerors. We're super conquerors through him who loved us and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And it's almost as if the letter to the Romans could stop at that point, that nothing in all creation or height nor depth or any of the created thing would be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. But then Paul remembers, as it were, wait a minute, I am a Jew. And how come the Jews, for whom the Messiah came first and primarily, how come they don't believe in him? All these Gentiles believe in Christ as the Messiah. What happened to the Jews? And so now we begin chapter 9, where he begins to wrestle with this question of why the unbelief of the Jews? Thank you, Ken. Excellent, excellent introduction. The problem is I'm throwing a wrench at you. So we're going to set that aside a little bit because I always like us to use an email when we can. And we got an email, Ken, that I'm going to throw at mm-hmm. you. You did not know this was coming. But I, th- I think it's a neat one. It's fun uh, be- because of your uh, expertise in, in Greek. Uh, the email, I'm going to summarize it here. But the person asked this question. Uh when did the mass get the title of Eucharist? And the person was wondering, he was reading Psalms 116, and he came across verse 17. And verse 17 says, I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. All right. Sacrifice of thanksgiving. The word thanksgiving is Eucharist. What he's wondering is, did the early church fathers see this this as the fulfillment of that prophecy in the Old Testament? The sacrifice of thanksgiving being the offering of Christ's body and blood in the celebration of the Mass. Oh yeah, there's there's no doubt about that, and and one of the I'm so glad that the I remember um, something I read in one of Scott Hahn's books about this, and and it's really I mean it's just right there in the Bible. Um, if you look at the different kinds of sacrifices that were made according to the uh, prescriptions of the Old Testament law, Leviticus and so forth, um, there you very clearly see that. One of the most important sacrifices was the sacrifice of thanksgiving, or the todah. And that todah is just a Hebrew word that means thanksgiving. But when they talked about it in terms of the sacrifice, it was a way of expressing the faith of Israel as an expression of gratitude for all that God had done for Israel. Now, that's what the psalmist is referring there, uh, referring to in, in Psalm 116, when he says, I will offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And it's very clear that the uh, uh, this is part of what was a part of the Passover as well, that our Lord celebrated on the night before his crucifixion. When they gathered together, the Passover meal was a sacrifice of of thanksgiving, as it were. Now, in the New Testament, the word Eucharistia, or the verb Eucharisteo, uh, does, uh, is used not with regard to the Eucharist per se, not with regard to the liturgy, but it's used in its general sense of, of thanksgiving. But 
What we don't find in the New Testament, we do find in the earliest layers of tradition within the New Testament. You see that in Ignatius of Antioch. Remember that Ignatius of Antioch was martyred in Rome, we think maybe at the earliest around 108. Now, if he was a bishop, which he was, he was a bishop of Antioch, that means he must have been at least 50 years old. That means that his life goes back into the mid-first century. And we're told by various other church fathers that he was the bishop of Antioch, who in fact, who knew St. Peter himself. So when when uh, Ignatius begins to speak about the Eucharist in various places, he uses the term Eucharist in a very clear way to indicate the liturgy uh, of the church. Um, there's various kinds of, there are various places where he, he does this. Um, and since you threw a curveball at me, I can't quite, uh, I can't quote chapter and verse just yet, but let me see if I can uh, come up with one. Yeah, in, in the letter to the Smyrnas, now remember, this was written around 108, perhaps 108 uh, A.D. So this is uh, only 20 years, uh, less than 20 years after the death of the last apostle. Um, here's what Ignatius says to the Smyrnans in chapter 7. They, talking about the heretics that have, that have separated from the church, he says they abstain from the Eucharist and from set times of prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist, hey, Eucharistia in Greek, is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, that flesh, that flesh which suffered for our sins, but also which the Father raised in his kindness. In other words, here's the word Eucharistia being used very clearly to refer to the, the Paschal mystery and the Mass. The other thing we know very clearly from the liturgies of the early church is that the Psalms and the Old Testament were the primary sources for uh, the foundation for theological thinking and, and liturgical worship. Uh, it, you know, it took a while for the, the writings of the apostles to become considered as scripture. They were the memoirs of the apostles. We see that in Justin Martyr. But in all the earliest fathers of the churches, you know this can far better than me, they were quoting the Old Testament. And you can imagine, yeah. you know, the gathering of the Eucharist when, there's, when, when the priest is surrounded by the people and they're following the, the institution as St. Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 11, um, when they read the psalm, that says, Psalm 116, what shall I render to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Um, you know, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So you have the martyrs happening. Um, and then later, uh, call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. Our Lord, one of the key things he said to his apostles, we find this in the, the later chapters of John, is that they are now to call on his name. And so we see all this as a fulfillment of these liturgical promises in the psalm that are fulfilled in the Eucharist, which again, Ken, is why our Lord said in John 6 that, a, that the, the partaking of his body and blood is how we remain in union with him, how we receive him, how we receive eternal life. This is the blessing which we celebrate in the Eucharist. And it's just, 
uh, it was natural for the early church fathers to see this as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies in this uh, sacrifice of thanksgiving. Another place that came to my mind is is in uh, Amos chapter 4. Let's see. Where is it 4? Amos chapter 4. Where it says, Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. Uh-huh. And proclaim free will offerings, publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel. You know, there is again that call. And we see this this connection with the, the Old Testament sacrifice being the continuity of it. Um, in a, a what, what did Pope Benedict call it? A hermeneutic of continuity. Yes. You know, right. the, the continuity of the Old Testament sacrifice, now in the New Testament sacrifice of the Mass. Well, because the church fathers, and in fact the New Testament writers, because they see the church as the new Israel, as Paul says at the end of Galatians, he says, and blessings be upon Israel, um, um, and blessed be upon the new Israel. In other words, the church then, as the people of God, is the Israel of God. Now, God set up this elaborate um a system of sacrifice and worship in the Old Testament in order to prefigure or to give a picture of the final worship that would come ultimately in the heavenly kingdom. And so the church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but also a harbinger of the worship that is is to come. And, you know, our, 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 our questioner there, our, our emailer, um, mentioned the fact when in the early church, and I thought of another example of this, um, and I'm reading from uh, my own translation here of the Didache, in that we did uh, available through uh, the Coming Home Network. Oh, yeah, right. But remember the Didache was written, we're fairly certain, either be- between the years 50 A.D. and 150 A.D., but much more likely closer to the second half of the first century when some of the apostles are still living. By this time, the word Eucharist is already being used as a technical term. And he says this in chapter 9 of the Didache concerning the Eucharist, celebrate the Eucharist in this way. First, concerning the cup, we thank you, our Father, um, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you made known to us through Jesus, your child. Glory be to you forever. Now concerning the bread, pray like this. We thank you, our Father, for the life and the knowledge that you've made known to us through Jesus, your son. To you be glory. As the broken bread was scattered on the mountains and gathered into one, so let your church be gathered in from the ends of the earth into your kingdom, because yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ. Let no one drink of the eat or drink of the Eucharist except those who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. In other words, here the word Eucharist is clearly being applied to the to the uh, liturgy, and that's a development that's taking place in the second half of the first century. You know, can you remind me that one of the key steps for me in my journey? from Presbyterianism to the Catholic Church was recognizing in the earliest days of the church in the writings of these early church fathers, when I went back and read them, I didn't find Presbyterianism. I didn't find the Baptist Church. I didn't find Methodism. I didn't find Lutheranism. I found the Catholic faith. And especially I found the Mass and the Eucharist and the centrality of the sacraments and the necessity 
of being united in the sacraments to our Lord Jesus Christ, not as individuals apart, you know, you and me going and starting our own little church over here because we have our own way of doing it. No, and mm-hmm. following the continuity of our Lord to his apostles and to their successors, and there in the development, as you said, in the sacrifice of the Mass. Yeah, yeah, the, the, there's no doubt about that. And I, and I think anybody who looks at the picture in an honest way has to say that the as as Cardinal John Henry Newman said in the 19th century, I mean, he must have had this enormous realization that you and I came to. And that is where he said, you know, the, the, the modern Catholic Church, yes, there's been developments like the difference of a tree and the seed. But the root of that tree is right back there in the early church. And it's just developed into the Catholic, the modern Catholic Church that we have today. But it's still the Catholic Church right back there in the first and second centuries. Well, again, Steve, thank you for your email. And uh, in some ways, as you talked about the church being the new Israel, the continuity of the children of Abraham, Ken, that brings us right to the passage today. In fact, that brings us right to all of chapter 9, 10, 11 of mm-hmm. Romans, this issue of the continuity of Israel. Yeah. And uh, the underlying question that brings this passage today up to date is, um, a question that almost every Christian must ask, at least within their heart, at some point, why haven't my friends and family members, or even the majority of mankind, responded to the call of Jesus Christ? You know, why are they set against coming to church? Why don't they believe in God? Is it their ignorance? Is it their stubbornness? Or is it my fault? Did I not tell them enough? Or is it God's fault? In other words, did God predestine from the beginning of time that only certain people would believe and others would not be saved? I I think there's, if I might just point out, Marcus, uh, an interesting parallel here um, between what Paul experienced in, in his life as an apostle of the Gentiles, but himself a Jew. He proclaims the gospel and the Gentiles are responding. These these Greeks and these Romans and these other people in the ancient Roman Empire who are pagans, they respond and believe in Jesus. But so many of his own brothers and sisters in the flesh, that is the children of Abraham, do not. Think of it this way, too. Um, what do you find in Europe today? You find those who have grown up in a Christian culture, in a culture shaped by the Christian and Catholic faith, and they're rejecting it. But where are people responding? In Asia and in Africa, people that have grown up in paganism. And the, on the southern half of the globe, Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds. But it's dying in Europe. What's the story here? What's going on? Why are people that have been privileged to grow up in this Christian culture rejecting it, while others who are growing up in pagan cultures responding to the gospel? I think it's the same sort of problem. And the question behind this passage, we're just going to look at 1 through 13 today, and uh, and we're cutting it, the argument a bit short because 14 and on addresses the issue right away, and, and that is... Do these people have free will to respond to Christ, or is it it's separate from our will? Is this something that God chooses for us? Um, and how do we understand that? And this topic, Ken, you and I both know that 
It's a topic that divides Christians, has divided denominations, has divided Christian movements throughout history. And that's understanding uh, why you and I, why a listener uh, has come to Jesus Christ and responded to Christ. Did we have anything to do with it? Was it totally the work of God? And there are, are passages we're going to look at that are a bit confusing on this. But that's why one of the goals of our study has always been the importance of recognizing that any scripture must be taken within the entire context of the book that we're studying, of the entire Bible, and of the entire tradition of the church. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, one thing that as I we're going to jump into this, and and if let me just throw this for, before we get in, if in fact Paul believed that the conversion or lack of conversion of a person was totally dependent on the predestined, almost nominal choice of God that has nothing to do with a person or their future or their choice. If Paul really believed that, then number one, why would he be sorrowful? And number two, here's the context, why would Jesus say something like in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations? Mm-hmm. That phrase, make disciples, Ken, is a word, mathetusate. You're the Greek scholar. Right, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, mathetus is a, is a vocative word, isn't it? That's right, it is, yeah. Make, make disciples. Yeah. Make disciples. Make yeah. disciples. We are called to yeah. make disciples. Yeah. Well, if we're called to make disciples, how does that fit with an idea that God predestined somebody from the beginning of time to be saved or not saved, regardless of their choice? How do you fit those together? You know, those are important criteria when we look to a passage to understand it in the context of the faith. Well, I think we're going to be talking about these in the next couple of weeks in in, in more depth. Uh, but we would need to <clears throat> lovingly warn our readers that the question of predestination is a very deep and profound and high and holy mystery, and we need to be very careful about how we approach it. So as we read this text through the ninth chapter of Romans and and, and beyond, uh, we have to realize that we're dealing with something here that we're going to do our best to penetrate its meaning, but it's also going to be to some degree beyond our ability to understand. It should draw us to, to humility. Uh, Verses 1 through 4, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen by race. Now, Ken, two questions that come to mind here. Number one is that first verse uh merely a uh you know a colloquial saying kind of like uh cross my heart's hope to die you know i am speaking the truth in christ i am not lying my conscience bears me witness in the holy spirit number one and number two why is it that paul in the middle of this letter he feels such anguish to address this issue why does he what is there about the audience that he's addressing in rome 
in the in the context that he believes that this is something very important he's got to address. Well, I think it's for two reasons. One is what you said about the audience in Rome. <clears throat> you see, it'd be very natural for both a Jew and a uh, Roman pagan who came to Christ and was a part of the church and also knew that Christ was Jewish and came for the Jews, it'd be very natural for them to ask, then why are the Jews not embracing this wonderful mystery? And if these people have experienced Christ in a very profound way in their personal relationship with him in baptism and being a part of the church, even a church that, that was under persecution perhaps in Rome already, um, why? Why would they not believe in him? Why would they not? So there's that situation which Paul's anguish may already be reflected in the anguish of the um, of the Christians in Rome. But I think that, that also we have to remember uh, that verses 38 and 39, where Paul, again, of, of chapter 8, remember that he has this this profound sense that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers or things to come um, none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God that immediately in asking the question about the Jews and their fate so to speak does that mean that God has ceased to love them did he is he ceased to choose them and that's the question he's going to ask in chapter 11 when we get to chapter 11 he's going to begin that chapter with the words i so i say to you god has not rejected his people how could god reject his people that's impossible isn't it but it seems that he has rejected them and then Paul is going to go on to say, no, he's not rejected me, you see, because I myself am an Israelite. I am of the tribe of Abraham. I'm of the seed of Abraham. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. So the fact that I'm a Jew and that I believe in Jesus as the Messiah is very, very clear that God has not rejected the people of Israel. Uh, recently, I was listening to a wonderful um a talk by a very dear friend of ours. Our name now is, our religious name is Mother Miriam of the Lamb of God, right? Yep. Rosalind Moss. And she is perfect evidence that God has not rejected the Jews. <laughs> but uh, we need to explore that a little bit in a minute. Yeah, she and her brother, as you said, are great evidence yeah. of that. All right, thanks, Ken. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grodi, and join with Kenneth Howe, and we'll be right back in just a moment. I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. the journey home. 
Cole Matson joins Marcus to discuss his conversion story. See how his studies led him home from the Presbyterian faith to the Catholic Church on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell. And we're looking at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Um, You know, one other thing, Ken, that strikes me when I've read this about why would Paul address this. uh, When you read all of his New Testament epistles, you find that Paul was always being challenged in his authority, in his mission, in his gospel. And of course, we know from the words of our Lord Jesus that uh, anyone that loves Christ will be hated because he was hated. He said, if the world hates me, the world's going to hate you. And so Paul, dedicating his life to serve our Lord Jesus, expected that there would be constant battle from the devil, from the world, from his own flesh. And uh, we know from the book of Acts uh, and the book of Galatians, that Paul recognized that he had a unique ministry to the Gentiles and that Peter was the missioner to the Jews and they accepted that calling. And so Paul had the, you know, you might say Peter had the easier challenge, not really, but <laughs> you know, he, he's going to the Jews who already have the information. Paul's going to the people where the gospel's never been preached, to people who never heard of Jesus Christ or the Jewish faith. That's his mission. So there may have been Jews saying, wait a second, Paul doesn't care for us anymore. Yeah, See, he's right. only caring for the Gentiles. He does talk to us Jews. You know, he comes to a synagogue, then quickly he goes and talks to the Gentiles. And so Paul here has to exclaim, wait a second, to the depths yeah. of my heart, I care for my brethren. Yeah, yeah. And this this is this is a heart that has truly been changed by Jesus Christ. When you believe that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, you want to share that with others. And I, you know, I have to wonder about people in general, Christians that just don't seem to care whether other people know Christ. And I have to wonder about myself at times because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm lackadaisical as well in that regard. And I'm not the kind of person that wants to, you know, beat people over the head with the Bible or with the chalice or anything else. Uh, but I, I would rather be in the mode of helping people once they express that interest, as we've tried to do in the Coming Home Network. But at the same time, our hearts ought to be longing that people would know these good things, these wonderful things, these these privileges. In the way that Paul says in verse 4, when he talks about the fact that the Jews were given the adoption or the sonship, they were given the Shekinah glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. They were given the liturgy or the cult 
cult of the church, the worship of the, uh, of the Israel. They were given the promises. In the same way, we've been given the sacraments. We've been given a Holy Father to lead us. We've been given you know, the gift of Mary as the mother of the church. We've been given all these wonderful things, but most of all, Jesus Christ. And do we care that others don't have this? I think that's the same concern that Paul has here. You know, I, I've, I've wondered when I look at the list that Paul gives in verse 4, whether this is a, a list of the inheritance that the Jews have that off the cuff he, he came up with, or was this a already known kind of summary of mm. the salvation history? You know, when he says, you know, they are Israelites and to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I mean, it's such a perfect summary of the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament in one sentence. Well, because by bringing them and in, 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 in bringing them out of Egypt in the Exodus, you have the definitive salvation event of the Old Testament, and it's referred to in the Psalms over and over again. Like Psalm one thirty six has this litany of the goodness of or the the love of the Lord, or the goodness or the chesed of God. That's the mercy and the covenant faithfulness. That chesed of God is forever. And that chesed, or that loving kindness of God that's forever, is recounted over and over again in the midst of talking about the history of Israel, but particularly focused upon the Exodus. That's what I think Paul is referring to when he speaks about the sonship. In other words, the Exodus was the event where God adopted Israel to be his own child, his own son. And then he gave the glory. That glory, by the way, is the Hebrew word shekinah, the, she, the shekinah, glory. He gave them his presence over the tabernacle. He gave them the covenants, first with Abraham, then with Moses. And then what next? The giving of the law. And so the giving of the law through Moses and the liturgy and the latreia, the, the, the worship of Israel, uh, then what we have after that is the promises of Israel. I think you're absolutely right. This is a summary of all the scope of God's dealing with his children in the Old Testament. All of this was given as a gift to the people of Israel. I'm, I was thinking about when the two men were walking along the Emmaus Road and Jesus appears with them and they don't recognize Jesus as resurrected uh, reality. Um, and they had all these things, right, Ken? They had all yeah. the stuff that's mentioned here, but they didn't get it until our Lord opens their eyes to see that the fulfillment of the patriarchs and the promises are in Jesus Christ. And so once the Old Testament is, the meaning of the Old Testament and the prophecies are pointed out in Christ, then it makes sense. So, the, so I want to say on the one hand, the Israelites had all of this, but without revelation of Jesus Christ, it doesn't necessarily open their eyes to what it meant. And it reminds me of another place where Paul says in Philippians 3, when he himself admits that he had all of this stuff, all of this heritage. 
He had all the riches of all of this, but then he says in verse 7 of Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted at loss for the sake of of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so the point of verse four and five is, yes, they have all this, you know, but that didn't automatically guarantee, therefore, that they remain in this intimate relationship with God because of the issue of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think we go ahead again. No, I was just going to say, I think this is this is so important what you're saying, because you see, there's three kinds of people that you can think of the those that were on the one hand, extremely opposed to Jesus, like, you know, the Pharisaic rulers. Right. Uh, and some of the Sadducees. And then there were those that were just kind of indifferent. They didn't care one way or the other. Uh, or they had a different plan, like the zealots that wanted to overthrow the Romans out. But then you had a few like Simeon. Remember Simeon yep. and Anna, the old man and old woman that, that were in the temple day and night. And they were expecting the Messiah so that when, when the little baby Jesus comes into the temple, Simeon can say, now let your servant depart in peace because my my eyes have seen your salvation. And so it, a question, the question was... The difference between these people was how they internalized those great privileges, which they were given. It's a question very similar to ours today. For us Catholics, we've been given these wonderful gifts. Yeah. Have we internalized them? Yeah. And so many men and women who are born in the church, baptized in the church, go through the hoops of the church, but it, it never connects. It never clicks. Yeah. And so they leave the church. They go searching. And maybe in the process, they have an authentic discovery of Jesus Christ and have a changed life. But now they're apart from the sacraments. They're apart from the blessings of the church. Of course, that's a work of the coming home network is to help them come home. But it brings us to the questions of verse 6 through 13, Ken, because the Israelites have these great blessings. But now we have this question in verse 6. But is it not as though the word of God had failed? Yeah, exactly. You know, because Paul goes on, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants. But through Isaac shall your descendants be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned as descendants. Yeah, this... uh this is ultimately the question that Paul wants to pose, and he's going to pose this in different ways in chapters, the rest of chapter 9 and also in chapter chapter 11 again. Um, but it's this question of, okay, God made all these wonderful promises to Israel. Israel didn't respond. So does this mean that the word of God, the, 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 the ministry of all the prophets, has this fallen and come to nothing? And Paul's answer is essentially stated for us in verse 6, this principle. Not all of those who are of Israel are truly Israelites. Let me translate that into modern times. Not all of those who are Catholic are really Catholic. That is to say, <laughs> those who grow up in the church, those who may be baptized, just as the Israelites were circumcised, those that are confirmed, not all of them have embraced the inner meaning of what it is. 
Now, and let me give an analogy here to help us understand this, Marcus. Do those who are born in the United States who grow up in the United States school system always embrace the principles that the United States was founded on? I doubt it. No. Right. In fact, there are many who do not understand the, the, the principles upon which this country was founded. But even in a greater sense then, do people understand the gospel? Paul is saying that those Jews who were physical descendants of Abraham are not necessarily the children of Abraham according to the promise. And that's that's the tension that he's going to be dealing with here in the rest of this uh, rest of this chapter. And he he's behind this seems to be important to remember that our Lord dealt with this issue when he was confronted by the Pharisees when they made the claim, well we're children of Abraham. Yeah, right. You know, right. we're not slaves. And Jesus has this this idea where he says, you know, that, you know, God can, can create children of Abraham out of the rocks if he wants. I know that you are descendants of Abraham. You seek to kill me. The descendants of Abraham did not understand him. You know, that just because you're born in the family of Abraham does not therefore mean that you're a child of Abraham. And there's there's the issue of what he's dealing with here. here. Well, there's an important thing. This, this bears upon, I think this is implicit under what Paul is saying. But let's uh, draw for just a minute on the church's uh, wisdom uh, in making the distinction in the sacramental effects between ex opere operato and ex opere operantis. Now, the ex opere operato means that there's an objective validity to the sacraments. In other words, baptism properly administered in the name of the Trinitarian God and with water is a valid sacrament, and it has its effect um, through the virtue of acting. That's what ex opere operato means. But there's also the other corresponding principle of ex opere operantis. Now, that literally means out of the work of the one working. And that has to do with the, you might say, the effects of the of grace that are in a person's life. In other words, even though a person is baptized, if they don't respond to that calling of baptism to live a life in Christ, they don't necessarily receive all the benefits of that. Or, to use the greatest of all sacraments, the Eucharist, the the bread and the wine properly consecrated are the body and blood of Christ, but the person receiving the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ, do not nece- does not necessarily benefit um, to a high degree in receiving that if their heart is not in the proper disposition of loving God, of loving Jesus Christ. And in the same way, I think we could say here that Paul is saying that just because a person comes in and, and says, I'm a child of Abraham, doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to receive the blessings of Abraham if they're not in tune with what Abraham was predicting and was signifying his own person. You know, it reminds me of St. Augustine in, uh, in his great work, The City of God, which I have to admit, I haven't read from cover to cover, which I, I need to one of these, Ken. You need to tell us, you being a Latin scholar, you need to tell us the best English translation <laughs> of the city of God. But yeah. it's in that work when he addresses the question of the visible and invisible church. 
you know, what mm-hmm. constitutes the church? And is it merely being baptized and therefore you're a member of the church? And is that all that's necessary for salvation? Uh, so if you want to understand who are the faithful, do you just look at those that have a membership card? Where mm-hmm. St. Augustine recognized that there are people in the church that are not faithful members of it. And there are people outside the church that are faithful members of it because of their mm-hmm. devotion to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And it can be baptism and baptism of desire. And, and, and it's, it should be equal, but it's because of our sin it isn't. And that's a bit of what Paul's dealing with in the passage. I think it is. And, and what he's saying, he's saying basically two things. Um, in verses 4 and 5, he's talking about the objective fact that Israel received the sonship, the glory, the the covenants, uh, the giving of the law, the, the liturgy, uh, the, the, the worship and the promises. In other words, the fact that there are people who are in the church, but not of the church, so to speak. They are in the church, but they're not living their lives in accord with what the church teaches about Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that the church isn't objectively true. Paul, in the same way, Paul says these things are objectively true, but not everybody that has been the inheritor of that, the the heir of that, is really in tune with what the church is saying. There is an invisible church within the church, and that's what St. Augustine was talking about, what you mentioned there, Marcus. But at the same time, some people might say, well, then that's all that really matters. And that was the Protestant mistake. That's right. The mistake of saying that all that matters is the invisible church. And Paul clearly would not endorse that because he's saying that those things were objectively given to Israel. The church is still the church, objectively speaking. That is, the external church is still important. Um, So he's saying that, yes, it's true that not everybody embraces the faith that is within the boundaries of the community of God. That's what I think he's saying in verses 6 through 9. But now in verses 10 through 13, he's giving us the reason why that's the case when he speaks about Rebekah and Isaac and then Jacob and Esau that came from them. What he's saying is that it's really a matter of grace and not of the works that people have done. As you mentioned at the beginning of the program, Ken, that this issue of predestination is a a, a delicate uh topic because mm. when when we push it too far we very quickly get beyond our human ability to understand because one of the dangers uh, I think one of the biggest sins that inflicts humanity is the sin of projection in other words we project onto yeah. other people what we think they're thinking but we don't know what he thinks so we, you know we, we have no way so we're going beyond our knowledge and we, we do that with God. And we think yeah. we know what God thinks and feels and how we, whatever, but we don't know that. I mean, uh, he is so far yeah. above us. And yeah. so understanding his intimate relationship to people and their choices uh, is a mystery. And that uh, we've often said that, that one of the main differences between the Protestant movements and the Catholic understandings of philosophy and theology is that very often... Protestants get caught up into either or. It's either this or that. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, from the beginning, it seems that Catholic theologian philosophers and teachers in the church have always kept the balance of the both hand. There's always a mystery. There's the mystery of our freedom, but there's also the mystery of the sovereignty of God. And so in this passage, Paul's starting to deal with this. On the one hand, you can see just by looking at the fact of Scripture that Abraham had more than one son, but not all these sons are the the trajectory of the the children of God. Right. So how do you deal with that when we see in Scripture, as Paul references, that even before they were born, God seemingly chose their destiny mm-hmm. beforehand? Uh, but, you know, uh, he's saying that the, uh, God's purpose of election might continue is the reason he did this. And though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad yet, uh, and not because of their works, but because of his call, God's purpose of election. And so from this, Ken, you and I both know from our Calvinist background is one of the foundations for Calvin's understanding of God chooses in his sovereignty and has nothing to do at all with our choice. Yeah, this is, a, again, we don't have time toward the end of the program here today to really get into this. But uh, what you said something there earlier I think is really important, and we're going to come back to this in future weeks, um, and that is the balance of the both and. Um, what the what the theologians and the, and the church and its councils have seen is that there's two realities we can, must keep in mind. One is that God is absolutely um, knowledgeable and sovereign over every event, every everything that happens within humanity. In other words, if God, and the way we can know that is by saying, well, what if God didn't know something? Well, what would that mean? Well, that would mean that he weren't, wasn't God. <laughs> in other words, God, by definition, has to be an all-knowing being. So God knows the choices that human beings are going to make. And we also know that we have to assert the freedom of the will to some degree to the extent that people can or cannot reject God, because if they if they do reject God, um, is that a real choice or was that God's choice of them or no, they're rather his rejection of them? The church has very clearly said, again, with great wisdom throughout all the ages that no human beings have a choice. They have to be held responsible. They cannot be held responsible for their sin if they don't have a choice that can be made. So there's these two things. If I might just point, I don't know if you've ever seen this um, example of a, uh, there was a, I saw a a cartoon in a, uh, in a New Yorker magazine one time, and there's this mathematician standing at the board, and he begins this long proof. And so he gets about five lines of the proof, and then he gets five lines of the proof at the end of the proof to prove his point. And then in the middle, he writes, a miracle happens. In other words, he gets the beginning of it, and he gets the end of it, but he doesn't know what's happening in the middle, right? <laughs> and that's kind of the way it is with, with our question of election and predestination. Clearly what Paul is telling us here is that the same thing is true in the case of Rebecca and Isaac. In other words, there was a choice by grace, and it's the same way with us too. We are chosen by grace to be in the family of God. 
Now, how does that work out in terms of what's being done in our lives and our choices? Well, again, we're going to have to get into that in the weeks to come. But clearly what Paul is saying here is he's challenging us to remember that just by virtue of being baptized, just by virtue of being in the church, that doesn't mean that we're going to be saved. The Second Vatican Council, Marcus, in the Lumen Gentium, the, the doctrine on the Constitution on the church, is very, very clear about that. That those of us who are in the church, our privileged position, and it is a privileged one, is not there to make us proud or superior or triumphalist. It is there to humble us, to remind us that we have a greater responsibility to follow the plan of God. You know, I was thinking, you and me, Ken, and everyone listening, God knows whether any of us will spend eternity with him or whether we'll spend eternity separated from God knows right now. Yes, he does. He knows that. He's known that from the beginning of the world. How does he know that? You know, uh, you know, if you or I were omniscient like God, our minds would explode. We would have, <laughs> we would have no, you know, how would we, we have no idea of doing that. But God knows. It, but it's dependent on how we live out our faith. Yeah. There's that mystery. God knows. But now we have the rest of our life to abide in Christ. And it should draw us to humility that uh, we've been given the gift of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We've been given the challenge to tell those in our life, but most importantly, that we will stand before God accountable for how we live. Paul said that earlier in chapter two of Romans. Yes, that's right. You know, that's the issue. And when we look at our friends and our family, we aren't to be paralyzed and wonder why hasn't God chosen them? We need to, we need to look at the whole situation and it comes back to us that to what extent have we told them, to what extent have we shown them what it means to live in Jesus Christ? Yeah, that's great. Mm. Ken, thanks for joining me today on this program. And those thank of you, you, thank you. We're gonna pick up next week with Romans chapter 9, verse 14, and we'll, we'll see how far we get into chapter 9, 10, because, or Ken, because there's a lot of good stuff in there. I want to remind the audience to go to deepinscripture.com to find out more about this program, about the archives of all the old Deep in Scripture programs, also about the work of the Coming Home Network, and we'd love to hear from you. So please join us on Facebook, uh, the Seach Network Facebook page, or at Twitter at CH Network, and uh, let us know whether this program is encouragement to you in your faith in Jesus Christ. God bless you. See you next week.